Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another fun episode of Emergency Trauma Mama podcast. And hopefully today you will learn something new. That's always my goal. And what we're going to be talking about today uh, is the TCRN exam. So a lot of people over the past several months have DM'd me on various social media platforms and asked me the question of, hey, you know what, I would love to take a board certification exam, whether it be the CEN or TCRN, how do you recommend I approach this? So rather than delve very deeply into the whole preparation process, I'll just kind of briefly guide you in the correct direction and then after that we're just going to kind of dissect a few questions that you may or may not see on the TCRN um, exam something more like prep um, like a prep guide something that you kind of get a feel for oh those are the types of questions that they'll be asking me so I really feel like it's always kind of nerve-wracking the first time that you are trying to approach something of this nature because it just seems like such a huge ordeal and such a big task, but I assure you that it's not. Um, actually, if you just kind of break it down into very small portions and do a little bit at a time and set your goal, you know, six months from now or a year from now and, you know, kind of start the process in your head now and say, okay, when I'm six months closer, I'm going to do this. Or let's say you haven't taken TNCC yet, but you're going to. And so you'd say, okay, I'm going to take TNCC and then I'm going to sit for my CEN within, you know, six to eight months, whatever it may be. You get the gist of what I'm saying. So really, it's not as difficult as sometimes people make it out to be. Um, I definitely would approach it in the manner that you normally would for any exam. So by that, I mean, you need to know what kind of learner that you are. So are you tactile? Are you kinesthetic? Are you visual? Are you auditory? How do you learn best? Because that's how you're going to want to prep for this exam. So if you're the kind of person who says, you know, I really need to be sitting in a classroom um, to hear a didactic lecture, and then I go home and I study on my own, and I do, you know, 25 questions a day um, on my TCRN study phone app, whatever it may be, and that's how you approach it, that's great. Um, You just do need to know what kind of resources do you have at hand? You know, is your hospital going to reimburse you for education purposes? Because that's always a big factor is cost. Uh, A lot of nurses do not want to pay for this exam out of pocket because it's expensive. And they don't really want to sit for it if they're not going to have um, any kind of rewards or recognition. Yes, you get to put some initials after your name if you pass the exam. And some people say, that's good enough for me. Um, Just having the certification, um, you know, it shows my patients that I'm at, you know, this level of professionalism and that's good enough for me. And that's okay. Um, Whatever, you know, floats your boat, basically. But there are a lot of other considerations um, for nurses who may not have a hospital who, you know, do have a clinical ladder where they reward nurses for having um, an extra certification. So definitely do your homework, do your research, find out what does your hospital offer? Why are you doing it? Of course, first, that's your motivation. Um, 
for doing it. You need to find that all out. But are you going to get it reimbursed? Because that's important too. So um, a lot of hospitals will not reimburse you, of course, until after you successfully pass the exam. So you do have to produce evidence of passing the exam. And then they will file all the paperwork through HR, which can take quite a long time in some places. However, you will get reimbursed uh, for the exam. And then, of course, sometimes it can lead to the fact, hey, you're up for a promotion. It's between you and nine other people and you have your TCRN and nobody else does. So, again, it depends on why you want it, what kind of resources you have available to you, and how you learn best as a um, a learner. So as an adult learner, you kind of need to know what what do I need to do? Do I need to sit in a classroom? Do I need to just study on my own? Um, and then of course there's online options as well. So I want to make that clear that just because you live, say, in a more rural area and, and, you know, maybe you don't work at a big academic level one teaching center, not everybody does. And so you need to find out, Hey, I think I can take this online course and then I can sit for the exam, you know, within the next month or two. But the first thing I highly recommend is, uh, going to bcn.org. That's B as in boy, C, Charlie, E, Edward, and Nora, dot org. And you create an account, and that way when you're ready to register, it will allow you to do so. Um, the other part, the other caveat of that is getting all of your ducks in a row. So you do need all the information that is on that website. For instance, there is a reference list for each exam. And by that, I mean, it's really, really long, <laughs> a really long list of books that you need to use um, in order to pick apart some of these questions. But for a lot of you that are already prepping for the TCRN, you've already taken um, TNCC five times and EMPC 10 times and ACLS 20 times. And <laughs> these are all old hat to you or you're already taking ATLS. So if you're familiar with all of those things, great. Um, but you should know what the breakdown of the questions are for this exam. So when you do click on the bcen.org and you go under study guides um, and about the exam, it will tell you the exam breakdown. So I like this because it gives you, again, more of a focus. So when you're looking at clinical questions, for instance, clinical practice head and neck has 33 questions. But within these 33 questions, you could have neurologic trauma um, regarding TBIs or SCIs or under maxillofacial trauma, you could have facial fractures, ocular trauma, or neck trauma. So think Lafour fractures, think hyphema, think globe disruption, think neck trauma, occipital dislocation, Think all those things, but within that realm, you can have up to 33 questions. So you do need to know quite a bit about those areas. So the next area is trunk, um, which covers thoracic, abdominal, GU, and everybody's favorite, obstetrical trauma. So your pregnant trauma patient, how are you going to get the baby out? Um, let's say, God forbid, mom has, um, mom has already expired and you need to get the baby out. So what are you going to do? Um, so imminent emergent delivery and of course complications of trauma and pregnancy and that goes back to your TNCC where you look at in the first trimester you know mom has this going on and so what can we expect her blood pressure to look like and 
all of those things. So EBL. So if you've got an estimated blood loss of this many mLs in a woman who's in the first trimester, what do you expect the mom to look like? So you do need to know first trimester, second trimester, and so on, and what kind of complications that mom can have um, as a result of trauma. Um, Next, we have extremity and wound. That's 25 questions. And under that umbrella, um, it also branches out into musculoskeletal uh, and surface and burn trauma. So under that scope, you have chemical, electrical, thermal burns, and inhalation injuries. Now, under chemical, it does say any body part, including the eye. So, when we talk about alkali and acidic and what the pH of the eye is, you do need to know. And again, think rule of nines and calculations. More percentages, knowing what's what. Because if you don't calculate your patient's fluid replacement appropriately... And remember, it's from the time of the injury, not from the time they hit the door um, in your ED, then the patient's going to suffer as a result, right? Which is, again, no bueno. Um, Moving on to the next area of focus on the exam, which is special considerations. So under this actual bullet point, there is so many different things that they can cover. Just briefly, just give you a a few things. Shock. Okay. Um, So know your stages. Um, HCOD, hypovolemic, cardiogenic, obstructive, distributive. You're going to need to know specifically what's what, um, what to expect. Um, Psychosocial issues related to trauma. So this is really going past um, just what we see in the ED. Obviously, if they're intubated, sedated, and ventilated, you're not going to be asking a lot of questions. However, um, if you're rounding on your patient and they're in the SI or MI and they're about ready to get extubated and you have family and that type of thing, or maybe you're visiting them on the tele floor and they are been in the hospital for a few days, obviously, um, they may be showing some signs of, you know, acute stress disorder, coping um, down the road, PTSD. So you do need to know what kind of comments are going to lead you down that clinical decision-making path. Um, so psychosocial issues related to trauma, um, SIRS, MODs, sepsis, ARDS. Yes, you do need to know prevention and recognition and like PEEP, ventilation strategies to prevent ARDS. Um, victims of DV. Uh, child abuse, elder abuse, and neglect, um, bariatric trauma patients, which are covered in TNCC, so I highly recommend uh, going over that chapter again. Substance abuse. So a lot of our patients, of course, in trauma are under the influence of drugs, alcohol, drugs or alcohol, and or both. So knowing what you will see with meth and coke and ecstasy and all of the others, is very pertinent. So moving on to victims of violence, because a lot of our trauma patients are status post GSW or stab wound, or um, it could be, you know, that they were a victim of sexual assault in addition to everything else. So how are you going to forensically comply? How, what do you have in your trauma recess room? Do you, you know, you obviously have your brown paper bags, but what's the proper procedure for evidence collection and preservation and then again how do you hand it off to the officer so coc chain of custody 
Um, all of those things are very, very pertinent because obviously if you're taking care of a patient who's a homicide and you botch the chain of custody, guess what? A lot of that evidence, everything that you've done, it can be thrown out, um, of a court of law and you do not want to be responsible for that. So make sure that you A, know it, B, live it, and C, that you know it for the exam. So um, patients with self-inflicted injuries, whether it's a GSW to the head trying to commit suicide, um, stab wounds, cutting, um, could be anything. So self-inflicted injuries, comorbidities, hemostatic resuscitation. So this covers your um, MTP, so your massive transfusion protocols, um, like reversing coagulants, so K-Centra, damage control, um, or DCR, damage control resuscitation is what most people um, say or hear, have heard of um, in practice. And of course, the trauma triad of death, which even though we're really focusing on the trauma tra- trauma diamond versus the trauma triad, remember that exams and textbooks are you know usually like five years or so behind because it's impossible to update all of that every six months, which we know EVP changes things very quickly. Um, complications for your trauma patient. So this could be anywhere throughout the um, continuum of care. So not necessarily in the ED, but it can be in the ICU or on the floor. So um, DVT, VTE, VAP, CAUTI, and trolley. And of course, how would you care for a patient with um, perhaps they're on the spectrum um, or they have um, sometimes they're they're blind or they're deaf or they have some kind of developmental or intellectual need um, so they're disabled in some way shape or form so how are you going to care for that patient who has a little bit different um, skill set than you know someone who doesn't um, need to say 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 they don't speak English. How are you going to um, address those special needs with that trauma patient? Um, and again, pediatrics and geriatrics are also under that that space of special consideration. And uh, last but not least, you have a um, area called professional issues. So within this, it's also quite lengthy. Um, there's quite a myriad of things to cover. So by that, I mean, if you're not actively working um, under trauma service, so you're not the trauma PI nurse, you're not doing performance improvement, you're not familiar with a trauma registry, you have no idea what the ACS verification process looks like, you do need to know that um, because it is going to have some questions, potentially 15. So how do we collect information for the trauma registry? You need to know. Um, Also, outcomes from follow-up. So say you are working at a level three and you transfer a lot of patients out to other facilities. Well, what kind of outcome follow-up can you expect to receive from the trauma center that you sent the patient to and vice versa? So if you're level one and you're getting a lot of incoming uh, referrals, then how does your facility follow up with those patients? So knowing the difference between level one, level two, level three, and of course there is a level four, although there's not many of them, um, how do they function? You do need to know that. And what makes them a level one, level two, or level three? via the American College of Surgeons stipulations. There's rules and regulations. Um, Research, clinical documentation, patient safety, um, SBAR, event reporting, 
disaster management. So there is some MCI and decontam covered in TNCC. Um, but if you do have an ATLS book or something or somebody has one that you can borrow, I highly recommend looking at some of that. It does go a little bit deeper. Um, trauma team well-being. So how do you care for your trauma team? Um, do you have peer support? Do you do debriefing, um, critical incident stress debriefing, or just debriefing? Um, how do you protect your staff from lateral violence amongst nurses, lateral violence, workplace violence, um, psychological first aid, and work-life balance. So what kinds of things does your hospital provide? HIPAA, privacy, EMTALA, designation and verification, which I already mentioned you do need to know, and that's via the ACS. So um, if you want to just kind of review that, you can go to the American College of Surgeons and look that up. Highly recommend that you do because if you aren't every day looking at this stuff, it's a little bit nebulous and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and if you haven't explored that part of trauma nursing, it is important that you do understand the continuum of care. So we're not just looking at what do we do in in the immediate, you know, okay, they come in through the doors and the medics have done this, that, and the other. Then we do this and then they go um, you know, to the CT or, or wherever they're going. And that's it. I'm done. No, that is not what the exam is covering. It's 150 questions and it's pretty extensive. Um, again, education and outreach is also covered. So like stop the bleed campaigns and car seat safety protocols, ethical issues, advocacy, and of course, closed loop communication for team dynamics and defined roles. So for instance, what does your trauma surgeon do? What is your you know, what does your trauma nurse team lead do? That type of thing. Again, 150 questions total. So that being said, um, let's just look at a couple potential practice questions that you might see. So let's say you're, you got your, your TCRN trauma nursing um, practice pocket study guide from wherever you'd like to get it. There's a lot of them out there. You don't necessarily need a pocket guide, but what I will recommend about the pocket guide is I loved it. I would just put it in my purse and whenever I had a moment, um, how much downtime do you have throughout the day? Hmm, some of us, not very many. However, let's say you're just sitting there waiting for a physician, you know, you're getting your well checkup, whatever. There are a lot of times, what do we do? We take out our phone. Well, that's all fine and good, and it's fun, but you could be studying for your TCRN exam. So when you take out, when you have the pocket study guide with you, it's super small. It fits in your purse or your pocket, whatever, and you just take it out, and it forces you to study um, when it's obviously going to be more fun to be on your phone and be on social media, but um, I do like the pocket guide. So, for instance, let's let's get into this. Um, we'll just say we're going to start with head and neck. Okay, so this is a rando question. And it reads like this. A patient has a fish hook, fish hook excuse me, embedded in the eye. Which of the following is the first line medication given to facilitate patient comfort and cooperation? So what I recommend is always reading the stem first. Regarding, it's regardless of what kind of exam that you're taking. Um, I always read the stem first. So by that, I mean the end. So the question, which of the following is the first line medication 
given to facilitate patient comfort and cooperation. So that's kind of broad, but you know that it's a pharmacological question and that you're going to need to know specifically a, a drug, right? Okay, so then your, your potential answers are as follows. Uh, fentanyl, um, preparacaine, um, midazolam, hydrocodone, and acetaminophen. So obviously, the question is B, because um, you're going to need to numb the eye. And of course, ocular injuries are extremely painful and very distressing, right? Because if I have a fish hook in my eye, I'm stressed out because I don't know if I'm going to lose my eye, right? I have no idea. Um, so you need that top topical ocular anesthetic agent. So alkane, ophthane, whatever your hospital has. So this, you know, a couple little drops of that, usually, we usually just keep it in the um, triage cart too. So it's just super handy. You can, it's locked, of course, but you can just get in there real quick and you can just, you know, put a couple drops in per your SOPs or standing operating procedures, whatever you have um, for your triage. But obviously this is going to help your patient greatly. Number one, reduce the pain. Number two, try to reduce the stress a little bit, but you're going to need to obviously move them to another room, right? So they probably have to walk a little bit further um, to an EENT room to have a slit lamp exam and um, EENT surgeon come in and take a look. So obviously I would probably pop a line in this patient too. And uh, eventually once I get them in the room, you know, maybe they can have some um, fentanyl as well. Um, so obviously this patient's going to need surgical intervention. And why would you be giving them anything by mouth? Hmm, that, may, that doesn't make sense, right? We would never go with the um, Vicodin. And serious ocular injuries, we know that the people have a lot of anxiety about them. So fentanyl um, would be um, a good drug of choice. You would want to um, further care, stabilize the impaled hook, cover both eyes, um, and then elevate the head of the stretcher, right? Because you're thinking about intraocular pressure and if there's vitreous humor leaking out, that type of thing. We don't know all that. Um, we just need to think about intraocular pressure. So antibiotics, tetanus, all those things with a penetrating globe injury are things that you would need to know. So that's that type of question, um, which is actually uh, pretty good. Um, let's do a trunk question real quick and then we'll see if we have time for one more question before we wrap up. So uh, under trunk we have a patient with a shallow stab wound to the abdomen who was admitted for ops and conservative in parentheses it says non-surgical management period. 12 hours after injury which of the following assessment findings would the nurse anticipate if the patient's bowel was nicked? Okay. So this is a really good question. But again, I read the stem first. So 12 hours after injury, which the following assessment findings. Those two words really literally jump off the page at me because I, as a nurse, am going to have to specifically find something that says to me, hey, you know what? This patient needs to go back to the OR because they're bleeding. So... Um, I read the stem first, which of the following assessment findings would the nurse anticipate if the patient's bowel was nicked? So 
you're putting yourself in that position and in that role. You're going in to do an assessment and then all of a sudden you are like, hmm, yeah, he needs to go back to the OR. So I'm going to call the trauma surgeon and get him ready to go stat. So here are your potential answers. A, temperature 38.9 degrees Celsius. Remember, 37 even is 98.6, so this patient is febrile. Um, WBC count is 16, diffuse abdominal tenderness. Okay, that's A. B, BP is 98 over 70, heart rate's 131, and they have right upper quadrant pain. C, temperature is 38 degrees Celsius, still febrile. Um, WBC is 12, and they have some stab site tenderness. Hmm, okay, moving on. D, BP is 112 over 52, heart rate's 128, and they have a lactate of 4.6 milliosmoles per liter. So what do you think about that one? Again, here's the key. There's actually two keys. One is 12 hours after injury. Okay, so we have to think. Would we expect this patient to have spiked a temperature within 12 hours because obviously they have fecal matter leaking into their abdominal cavity. So it's 12 hours post-injury. So the answer to that, of course, is yes. And we would expect a very high WBC count. I'd say higher than 16. But again, this is an exam world. This isn't real world. Um, So temp is 38.9, WBC is 16, and they have diffuse So, I mean, obviously, it's just, it's, we've got a lot of problems, right, with this patient. So, the answer, of course, is A. So, because of their infection potential, most penetrating abdominal trauma patients are surgical candidates. Of course, we know this already, but if the peritoneal cavity was not penetrated, sometimes surgeons will just go in conservatively, uh, excuse me, conservatively, and they'll manage the patient and say, you know, I'm going to sit on him and just watch him. Okay. However, now you notice that he's spiked a temp, his WBCs are elevated, he's got diffuse. So all of this suggests early infection, um, and it's consistent with bowel penetration. Um, why are the other ones wrong? Well, a BP of 98 over 70, heart rate 131, and right upper quadrant pain suggest what? Well, remember the liver is in the right upper quadrant, and I teach that R, R. So the liver ends in the R, and it lives in the R. So liver is in the right upper quadrant, and they never said anything about hepatic injury, yada, yada, yada. So of course, The vital signs are like, okay, well, maybe those correlate, but they're throwing you off. They're throwing you down a rabbit hole um, with the right upper quadrant pain because that has nothing, hepatic injury has nothing to do with the bowel, right? Like those are two separate things. So they're trying to throw you off the scent. Um, A patient with a temp of 38, WBCs 12, and stab site tenderness is normal, right? Um, 38, meh. But, of course, the WBCs will be elevated. 5 to 10 is normal, but he's 12, so he did have some trauma. Um, That doesn't scream anything to me as a nurse. Um, A BP of 111 over 52, heart rate 128, lactate of 4, is consistent with what? They're already, like, in sepsis, so that's bad. 
Um, but that's not what they're asking you. So again, this is where you have to go back um, and say, well, that's unlikely that they're already going to be like that septic. Um, if I just found this injury and it's 12 hours post injury. So they're saying they wouldn't be that far down that path. Okay. So think, remember we're talking about SIRS. So there's SIRS, sepsis, mods. You kind of need to know where does each patient fall? So this is specific to that type of question because the patient was conservatively managed, like kind of sit on them and wait. The stab wound didn't look that bad. However, it went a little further than the initial wound exploration, um, re- you know, revealed to the trauma surgeon at that time. So the correct answer for that is A. Remember, um, so you do need to know the difference between SIRS, sepsis, MODs, and all of that. So that's just a little taste of what we have as far as the TCRN goes. And I hope that you found the dissection of those questions um, somewhat helpful. And potentially we can revisit this. We can do a couple CEN questions. We can do a couple CPEN questions. So go ahead and uh, shoot me a DM on um, Emergency Trauma Mama on the gram. And if you don't follow me, go ahead and follow me now. And uh, you guys all have a good afternoon, morning, or night, depending on where you're listening. So Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you later. Have a good one, everybody.